Well, good morning, friends at uh, Hamilton Baptist Church and others who may be uh, joining them uh, on the uh, digital channels. It's great to be with you today. What a privilege. Thank you so much for inviting me to come and open God's Word. And uh, we're going to open up and continue this series in 1 Timothy uh, that you're enjoying in these days. We'll continue where you left off last Sunday. So let's open our Bible, shall we, at 1 Timothy chapter 3. And why don't I pray and ask the Lord just to help us as we look now at his word. Gracious Father, we thank you that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We pray now uh, from our homes as in this slightly unusual way we open our Bibles and we uh, look at a screen. We pray nonetheless that by the power of your spirit you'll speak to us and you will awaken us to the truth of your word, that you will do us immeasurable good as we spend today uh, in this passage. And I ask, Heavenly Father, that you would exalt your Son, the Lord Jesus, and may the result of our study of your word be him being lifted up and held forth to people uh, in our town and in our nation and in our world who so desperately need to know him as their friend and saviour. Bless us, we pray. Help me now. Help us as we listen, as we study. In Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, do please have your Bibles open uh, at that passage uh, that I mentioned there, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3. Um, if I mention to you the ideal home show, uh, it may evoke for you, as it does for me, memories of when we used to be able to go out for a start and participate in extreme sports, uh, like going to places where other people were, like the SECC or Kelvin Bridge, if like me you're old enough to remember going there and wandering around the stalls at the show and looking at everything on display from knife sharpeners to complete houses built within the exhibition hall. Uh, the, the Idol Home Show was an opportunity to go and see what the, the building industry offered that was going to change your life. And it could affect the balance of your mind. Uh, Meg and I went towards the end of the exhibition a couple of years ago and we actually had to go and sit down and have a cup of coffee to, to discuss the possibility of what we thought was a very good idea of us buying a heavily discounted, wooden constructed octagonal teepee for the garden. We were so close, thankfully since prevailed. Many years ago, a friend showed me that the, the original ideal home show is in the Bible and it only lasted a very short time. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the man and the woman lived in perfect harmony with the Lord and with each other and with their environment. And I guess we've been longing for that elusive, perfect life, that ideal home ever since. And as you've already seen in this series in 1 Timothy, Paul points out in chapter 2 verse 14 that the perfection of Eden was shattered when the woman was deceived by the serpent on the promise that her eyes would be opened and she would be like God. And the thought of that appealed massively to her. And the man who was there, apparently he didn't even have the excuse of being deceived. He stood there like a chump and watched the whole thing happen, totally failing to honour his Lord, his Creator, totally failing to love and to protect and to lead his wife. He should have weighed in, but of course he didn't. And there and then in Genesis 3, that was the end of the ideal home show. And history since then has been the far from ideal home show. Now we know wonderfully, because of the Lord Jesus, the one 
who, who, who we love because he first loved us. One day we're going to be in the ideal home forever. We're going to be with the Lord forever. And in the meantime, the Lord is in the business of transforming lives. And, and Paul wrote this letter to Timothy, whom he'd sent to serve the church at Ephesus. And he tells us why he wrote in chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. Have a look down at it with me. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you. This is what the whole letter is about. I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So that's Paul's reason for writing. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is the household of God. It's the blood-bought family of the Lord. And Paul wants his readers to know that there is a way for us to think and understand the gospel now and behave in the light of the gospel now that puts the ultimate ideal home and the ultimate ideal life meaningfully on display now. So the household of God in this world is in part meant to be a very attractive advertisement for the ideal home and life that awaits us in glory. Now, we're learning, aren't we, in this letter, that, that this behaviour in the household of God that Paul's writing to Timothy about is radically countercultural for sure. It looks far from ideal to our culture. It's what the culture campaigns against. But the culture isn't the household of God. Those who don't know the Lord Jesus, living in spiritual darkness, just as we did before we knew him, are in open rebellion against him and against his purposes. And for the sake of reaching and winning the culture, Paul doesn't seem to overly concern himself about how those who don't know and love the Lord might react to what he's saying should be happening in the household of God. He's writing to the household, to us, about the household. The Lord our God is the head. He's the boss. But as I say, the church is also meant to be, as Revelation 1 says, like a lampstand. Life in God's household is meant to be something that lights the way. It's meant to be deeply attractive. It's meant to be like the ideal home show as we demonstrate to anyone who takes the trouble to watch our lives as a community of God's people as believers that God's household is a great place to live in a fallen world. Now as we open up chapter 3 verses 1 to 7 we're going to spend today morning and evening looking at how God leads this his household, his church, the leadership of the local church and the section that I've had assigned to me focuses on the elders and so essentially across today morning and evening I want us to notice I think four things let's go first of all to what I've called the transition to the elders the transition to the elders how did we get from the content of chapter 2 to the content of chapter 3 it's not that Paul has a kind of butterfly brain as I sometimes do and he hops from one subject to the next no, there's a logical flow here. The big issue in Ephesus that Paul urged Timothy to stay and tackle, probably when Timothy wanted to run and hide, is the poisonous spread of false teaching in the church. Glance back with me to chapter 1, verse 3. He says to Timothy, As I urged you 
when I was in when I was going to Macedonia, remain in, at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrines. The the wannabe teachers in the church in Ephesus were in danger of taking the ship off course, hijacking the household, leading the church away from the authentic apostolic gospel. And then alongside that, as we saw last week, there were also some of the women who, a bit like Eve in chapter 3, thought that they could do a better job than the men in leading the church. And you can imagine uh, the women glancing at each other, rolling their eyes, wishing they could have a crack at it and show the men how it's done. And of course that has a very contemporary and perhaps understandable ring to it. I think we need to acknowledge that there are many sisters in Christ in the church who may be much more gifted, for example, in, in, in their ability to teach and to engage with people in strategic thinking and in caring, much more gifted than the men. But the unavoidable issue here is that irrespective of these sisters in Christ being potentially as gifted or more naturally gifted than the men who are leading, and while our sisters are to be encouraged and to be invested in, to exercise every conceivable form of gospel ministry in the household, including vital teaching ministries for the upbuilding of the household, nonetheless, there is one aspect of service that the Lord, whose household we are, says he holds not all men, but certain men accountable for. Now we're not going to look back over the section that David McCaig so helpfully unpacked last week, but when Paul writes in chapter 2 verse 12 and says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, he's beginning to migrate. This is the transition towards the elders' work, as we're going to see today. And even though that verse may sound draconian in our culture, and may even appear to be grossly unreasonable to some of us within the church family, we actually see in that passage in chapter 2 that the Lord has his reasons for saying what he says in verse 12. And he gives them in 12, 13 and 14. The church is his household, it's his blood-bought family. And as I watched in preparation for today, as I watched David preach through chapter 2 last week, I thought he did so excellently. Excellently. And, and, and I say that not because I'm a man, not because I happen to be an elder in another local church family, not because what he said suits my view, certainly not because I want to see women held back and denied a status, but I thought it was excellent because he sensitively and accurately and courageously unpacked God's word, the word of the God whose household we are. And it was pretty plain. Now, I, I, I don't know what you're thinking, but of course it's impossible for me not to hear that as a man. And it may be very difficult for some to believe that this is not just non-PC classic paternalism. One of the frustrations of not being physically with you today is that we don't get to go and have coffee later and talk about this. But I hope that when we're finished tonight, we'll see that this office of the elder that Paul is now transitioning to deal with isn't an exalted status that is unjustly denied women. 
and most men in the church but is a humble demanding form of service for the sake of the flourishing of all the men and women young and old in the church and for the sake of the lost people around us that they may see that God's whole household is the ideal place the ideal home to his glory and what we read in chapter 12 isn't just jarring to Christian women men do as well elders need to know is this right so I want to say today if you're in pain about some of this stuff if you wince at these verses at the end of chapter 2 and the way that chapter 3 is heading can I humbly suggest that you ask the Lord whose household we are just in your heart now Father is this right is this your will for your people and we trust God to bring us not to grudging acceptance but to profound joy if this is his word as his spirit speaks to our spirits through his word so that's the background that's the transition from chapter 2 to chapter 3 and now Paul writing with the authority of the Lord Jesus himself as chapter 1 verse 1 makes clear he now turns to the kind of local human leadership that God raises up in local expressions of his household, the local church like HBC. So we move from the transition to the elders to the task, secondly, the task of the elders. Have a look there at verse one. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. There, there are two words uh, principally, maybe three in the New Testament that speak about this office of the elder. This word overseer, the, the presbyter, the elder, and the, the pastor. And all the evidence in the New Testament points to the task of the overseer, the elder, the pastor being one and the same. Not different jobs, the same role. And I find it very impressive to see that practically every church mentioned in the New Testament has overseers, has elders, always plural, not a one-man show. So it would be pretty clear that Ephesians was one of these local churches and having a local eldership was not a kind of alternative leadership structure among many that the church could choose for themselves. It was universal in the New Testament as far as we can see and as far as the text makes clear. So the overseer and the elder and the pastor all refer to the same task in the New Testament. They're used interchangeably and it's essentially the role of the shepherd of the flock. But this idea of being overseers may sound a bit like a charge hand, making sure the workers keep at it, or, or the task of looking down from an exalted position on the other brothers and sisters in the household. That's not what it means. But for us to see that, I want us to now go, as we'll come to later, verse 5, just for a split second, because it really helps us to define the task. You see that line in verse 5? He's concerned how he will care for God's church. How he will care for God's church. So this oversight is with a view to caring for God's church, God's household. God's church and it is his leadership his lordship his shepherding of his flock 
that he takes with absolute seriousness and he has decreed that he will shepherd his people by his word through the lives and the work of some men by the power of his spirit in the local church and that is the task of the elders. I wonder do you remember in Acts 20 when Paul was actually taking his leave of these very Ephesian elders that he's speaking about here in, 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 in chapter 3 he was leaving them for the last time and he told them in Acts 20 verse 28 do you remember it? Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock of God of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood he says I know that after my departure fierce wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them and we see, don't we, in these verses that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is infinitely valuable. He shed his blood to purchase his church. And it's definitely vulnerable. That's why the Holy Spirit raises up elders, overseers, to care for the church, to protect the church. Therefore, self-promoting egomaniacs who see church leadership as an opportunity to rise above the rest and to get noticed and to get their voice heard, they need, well I don't know what they need, they need to get saved. They've completely misunderstood the gospel, never mind the work of the elders. Ask yourself, why would Paul have to make these points about the task of the elders in verse 1? Why would he feel it necessary to tell Timothy that the work of an elder was a noble task. One that it would be a worthy thing for others to set their hearts on. If being an elder in Ephesus was self-evidently an ego trip and a role that brought personal distinction and advantage and promotion, Paul would hardly have to begin the section the way he does in verse 1. Now, I think he begins like this because in Ephesus... Shepherding the flock of God was a tough task. It was a nightmare. He has to tell Timothy, remain there. It was the kind of job in church life that others are definitely better equipped for, others being anyone but me. And if that's why Paul began as he did, that would be perfectly consistent with everything else he says. We're going to see today, I hope, that the work of the elders is enormously demanding and in my personal experience and observing of others elders are all too aware of their own frailty they're so conscious that we serve under the chief shepherd that we will give an account to him for how we loved and led his people according to his word so let me make a bold statement as we think of this task if you envy the elders it's only because you've completely misunderstood what it's like to be in their role, to account locally to the flock and ultimately to the Lord. Pray for your elders. That's going to be a massive application arising out of this text today. Well then, what is it that the Lord wants us to see in the lives of those who are going to take care of his church, his local churches? 
Who are we to look for, to direct, to develop, to defend us? Well, we move from the, the transition to elders to uh, through what we've seen about the task of the elders, thirdly to the tests for the elders. And this takes up really the rest of the passage down to verse 7. But before we look at these character requirements of elders in a little more detail, let's be clear that these tests we read, out, we read off here are not tests to identify a special type of Christian who might serve as an elder. You see, there is no higher standard of behaviour required of an elder than required of any believer who's not an elder. That would be a terrible misunderstanding for us to go away from a day in 1 Timothy 3 thinking, they've got to behave like that, I, I don't have to. The elders are not the spiritual equivalent of the Institute of Advanced Motorists. You know the guys who have that little round badge in the front of their cars and they've gone for extra training to make them better drivers while the vast majority of us, we don't bother with that but we can still drive anywhere on a basic license. There's no parallel there. With the exception of one test of gifting, the ability to teach at the end of verse 2, the tests of character are there to be sure that the men being considered for eldership are nothing more than sincere, excited, invested followers of the Lord Jesus. It's not advanced Christianity, it's basic gospel living. And obviously there's, there's no expectation that any Christian will be less than that, especially not one who is being considered for leadership. So the characteristics and qualities that we read of here are not only expected of elders and deacons, apart from the requirement to teach, as I say, that's the distinctive one. We'll come to that. This is, chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, how everyone ought to conduct themselves in God's household. And Paul's point is that if we don't find this gospel impact being made in a man, then he should not be considered for leadership in God's church. Now, as you look at the text, you might have noticed as it was read to us that verse 2 gives us the positive characteristics, what the men should be, and verse 3, to which we'll return tonight, God willing, gives us the negative, what the men should not be. Now, let's just finish off this slot just now, looking at verse 2, the positives. Have a look with me. First part of verse 2, therefore an overseer must be above Reproach. Well, what does that mean? That sounds a bit intimidating, above reproach. Well, it does not mean elders are Christians who are sinlessly perfect. Paul has reminded us in chapter 1, hasn't he? Verse 15, we love it. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost or I am the chief. That's every Christian's testament. Why am I a Christian? Because I'm a sinner. The Lord Jesus didn't come to call the righteous. He came to call the sinners. The only way you can belong to this church is if you know you're a sinner. To be above reproach is not to be sinless, but is to live a life of consistent, gospel-shaped discipleship that does not reasonably attract valid criticism or objection. You see, what Timothy was up against at Ephesus is the opposite of a life that does not attract reasonable criticism and objection. 
chapter 1, verse 5 and 6 make that really clear. Have a wee glance back at it with me. The ones there who wanted to be teachers were full of hot air because the text says they had swerved. Do you see it? They had swerved from love as an operating basis with a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That's what they'd abandoned. So these are the characteristics. Operating from love with a pure heart, a good conscience, a sincere faith. These are the characteristics, Paul says, that we should see in the household of God among all of us. And that's what you look for in your elders. That's what it means to be in that sense above reproach. Second part of verse 2, he is to be the husband of one wife. In essence, the Christian married man, elder or not, is to be known as a one woman man. What does that mean? Well, it means practically that everyone in the church family, everyone in the neighbourhood, everyone in the workplace, everyone that he knows through leisure pursuits, just knows that this Christian guy has eyes for one woman only, and that is, that is his wife. He's not checking out anybody else. He's known to be a one-woman man. And he's known to be a one-woman man who's not choked about that, who's not seething with resentment and thinking about all that he's missing out on. But rather, he's enthusiastically a one-woman man. He's rejoicing in all that God has given to him in her. He's so thankful for all the misery that he's sparing himself and others by being a one-woman man. Now, this requirement does not exclude unmarried men from church leadership. The example of Paul himself, as far as we know, he wasn't married. And leader of the Lord Jesus himself shows us that. And, and, and we know positively that Paul commends those who are called and gifted by God to remain unmarried. So there's no issue there. Nor does this mean that if a man is widowed and remarries, that he is to be permanently ruled out of eldership if, if everything else lines up. No, the concern here is that the man is shown to delight in keeping his promises. He is so thankful for what God has set up in marriage. He is a one-woman man. Third we point in verse 2, Paul says, he is to be sober-minded. It's a great thing and arguably very important to have a sense of humour uh, and not to take ourselves too seriously. But sober-minded points to the fact that in caring for souls, not everything is a joke. Not everything in life can be for our amusement. The elders have responsibility for a defined group of people, every one of whom is either getting closer to the Lord Jesus or growing further away from him. And therefore, this is a serious task. This calls for being sober-minded about it. Next phrase in verse 2, self-controlled. This is the character that enables us to think before we speak, to react proportionately, graciously, not to have to go around apologising for outbursts or unwise comments. Not to go and buy a wooden constructed teepee when you're at the uh, ideal home show and the vapours get you. Self-control is such an important thing. 
we're told, aren't we, that men can't help acting on impulse. And that's probably true at a physical, human sense. But following the Lord Jesus trains us to want to please him in our reactions, not just to please ourselves, not just to abandon ourselves to the instant gratification. So here are the things. The overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled. And then the next phrase, or the next word, respectable. Respectable. Now again, as with above reproach, being respectable does not point to a life of pretense whereby we, we try to make it look as though we're respectable. Rather, this is the product of a, a kind of consistency of life that will return to God willing tonight that wins the respect. Sometimes it's a grudging respect of onlookers. We might not even be aware that they think that of us. We sh certainly shouldn't be trying to, to create impressions of respectability or impressions of anything in people's minds. But the overseers are to be respectable. Next, the overseers has to be hospitable. You won't serve well as a believer, as a Christian, certainly not as an elder, if you aren't open in your heart to people, which results in you having an open home for people. As believers, we, we, we need to let one another into each other's lives. Uh, and elders are to lead the way in that. They're not just to go to other people's places and, and, and be with them where they are. They are to invite people into their own lives and into their own homes as part of this modelling of the gospel-shaped life. And so what we want as elders is men who love the sheep as opposed to men who love being shepherds. There's something to think about this afternoon. Do you see the difference? Men who love the sheep as opposed to men who just love being shepherds. Now these are all basic characteristics of a Christian and we would expect our leaders to be so characterised. But now, finally, at this stage, we come to, not to another characteristic, but to an essential aspect of spiritual gifting for elders. Look at the end there of verse 2. The overseers are to be able to teach. This is the only aspect of qualification that distinguishes elders not only from deacons but from everyone else in the church family. Alongside these characteristics of, of a kind of consistent, joyful Christian discipleship, the mark of the men who the church is to, to, to consider the Lord is raising up as elders is that when they open their Bibles with people, whether it's one-to-one -one or in a small group or in the main church meetings from the platform, people are helped. People know that this is how the Lord is speaking to them. They get a sense that, that, that this, this man is helping me hear God's voice, hear God speak. I'm clear that this is not the bloke's idea, this is not the elder's idea, this is not his philosophy, this is not their agenda, this is God's word. And every elder, like every Christian, must live under the authority of God's word. And therefore the elders feed and lead the church, not by their personal authority, 
but by the authority of the living and lasting word of God. Elders have to know by spiritual instinct that we have nothing else to offer but what the Lord himself has given us in his word. We are, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, pastor teachers. We pastor the church by teaching the church the word of God. And it is as the word of God is taught by the men in the local church who know the Lord, who know the word, who know the flock. It is as that happens that God's voice is heard and his people know his voice and they love the great shepherd's voice speaking to them. And they thrive and flourish as they are fed from the word of Christ and led by it at the hand of the local elders. As leaders, the elders are to give guidance and direction to the church. As teachers, they oversee the life of the church, also partly to preserve biblical faithfulness. That's why, for example, in Titus chapter 1, Paul says that the elders must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that the elder may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Isn't that a fearful responsibility under the chief shepherd? That's hard graft. That's why 1 Timothy 5.17 says, Let the elders who rule well be considered, have a look at it with me, be considered worthy of double honour, especially those who labour in preaching and teaching. Well, we're going to break there. I don't know about you, but I reckon there's a lot to think about in these two verses. And Lord willing, we'll pick up later on at uh, verse 3 and go down to verse 7. But as we mull this over this morning, why don't I lead us again in prayer and just ask the Lord's blessing on our consideration of his word. Let's let's pray together. Our gracious Father, we, we want to thank you that you love your church so much that you sent your son to make us your church. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you shed your blood to purchase us. Holy Spirit, we thank you that in your grace and power you show church families those men you have equipped to be part of the the elders team. And Father, we, we thank you now. We want to pray particularly now for the men that you've given that responsibility to at HBC. We want to thank you for Robbie and Nathan. We want to thank you for Kenny and for Jonathan. And we want to lift them before you now and to pray for the church family that as we look at this passage today, we will see what their work is, that we will see what their work costs, and that as a church family, we will love them and appropriately honour them and work with them in a determination to make your household look like the ideal home for eternal souls in Hamilton. Father, we ask that you would protect the healing of your word this morning from the malevolence of our defeated enemy. Make your word not bitter but sweet to us. Make it a lamp to our feet and a light to our paths. Bless us this afternoon as we later go and have something to eat and as we process what we've been thinking about so far and please bring us back to hear your word again in the evening we pray in Jesus name Amen